Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. A very big welcome to our listeners. As always, thank you very much for tuning in and listening to our podcast. Our guest today is Pepin Dinant. Now, Pepin has over 30 years leadership experience in restructuring and transforming companies, particularly in the manufacturing sector. And he has a new book out called Business Leadership Under Fire. And in that book, there are nine key steps. And we're going to take a look at these nine steps and get lots of tips about how to avoid being under fire when you're in leadership or what to do if you are. Pepin, a very big welcome to you. Perhaps you would just like to do a little bit more of a, an introduction. Well, uh, thank you, Rebecca. And uh, it's my first book. <laughs> yeah, I've never written a book before, so it was a, it was a great experience. And I think, you know, um, interesting question that I've been asked quite a bit is why, why have we written the book uh, now? So Richard Wesley and myself. I think on the one hand, um, I was... I was always fascinating with the crossover between business and military. And, uh, you know, when I finished my last mission at Hilding Andrus, you know, we completed the mission um, relative to others. It wasn't the most successful mission. So I was thinking to myself, and this was about the time when the pandemic started, you know, what to do. And then I thought about, well, what would, what kind of book would I have had or what, what would I would, sorry, let me, rephrase that so this is an instance where you you cut so you know what kind of book would i have appreciated 30 years ago and that's how we came up with the idea for this book so it's really you know very practical pragmatic because you know as you know better than i do there are many good business books there yeah and uh, we were obviously doing our market research looking at the kind of books out there but we didn't find a book which in English, you would call a how-to book. So that's how the idea came about to write a book which was rooted in real life experience, both Richards and myself, which had a down-to-earth approach with nine steps, which is you know enough to cover, I would say, the complex process of a transformation, but not too many so that people can't remember, and ultimately offers a practical guide to good leadership. So that's how the whole project came about and we're very proud that you know we launched this book uh, on the 15th of february so it's basically out now excellent awesome it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast pepin thanks very much for uh, for joining us and yeah i think uh, just having a, a another look through your book now i think we're gonna have a, a really good conversation especially with your background in the variety of roles that you've had and then also your co-author richard as well with his, his military background too um, diving into your book, the, the first step is really all around establishing leadership and clues in the name of the book is sort of primarily focused on, on leadership too. So I guess just from your perspective, to sort of like set a baseline, what would you say leadership, whether that's in a company or a military or, or some other organization, what do you think leadership is kind of really all about? 
Well, Callum, that's a super good question. I would say that are probably almost 100,000 answers that question, but <laughs> sure. I, I would define leadership on the one hand as being able to do three things. One, you know, you need to, you need to get across to the people, whether business or military, that you are a safe pair of hands for the task on hand. In other words, that people have the impression this person knows what they're doing. The second is, and this is very important, you need to be able to communicate in a simple and effective manner. People need simple messages, you know, especially when you're leading it has to be simple, it has to be clear. That's the second point. And the third point, and this is typical of, of complex situations, be it military or business, where you have a challenge to deal with, you, you need to convey to people certainty. You need to convey to people that you have a plan and that you're gonna get this done. Yeah, so to answer your question, how would I define good leadership? That's one way I would define good leadership. To, to have these three qualities as a leader. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that's, um, it's, it's a similar sort of approach to a lot of, of, a lot of what our guests say, where you have like a, a clear, I guess, like vision or a plan of, of where you want to get to. You're communicating that in an effective way. And then also, uh, what I wanted to dive into in a bit more detail was your first point about where people feel like they're in a, in a safe space with their, with their leadership and their team, the company, whatever it might be. Do you, by that, do you mean that people feel like they're kind of empowered to, take a bit of a risk, try something a bit different. And if they, if it doesn't work out well, if it fails, they'll be in sort of safe hands because they were kind of going in the right direction. Is that sort of what you mean? Yes and no. I think more the, the, the basic human needs, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's a company or whether it's a, a military organization or any other type of organization, when somebody is the leader or wants to be the leader, people need to feel that this person has a clue about sure. what, you know, what the task is on hand. So basically, if you're getting into a plane, you really want to know that the front actually knows how to fly a plane. That's sure. what I mean. Got it. That, make, that makes sense. The, the, the point you're addressing is more than something uh, which I would call leadership style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, you know, there are many people who are very successful as leaders, as business leaders, and they are not necessarily always the nicest people but in the end they are very successful. So, you know, me from, from where I sit, having seen many difficult, challenging situations, you know, my focus is obviously on getting the job done. Everybody has their own style in how they lead, but typically the type of situation I'm faced with, it's really about finding, and that's the nine steps really, it's about finding that good path forward to get from here, which is obviously a problem place, to here where you have solved and transformed the company to get to a better place. I guess that sort of ties into some extent, doesn't it, to step four where you talk about who dares wins. And it's kind of like the strategy and the tactics of, as you said, getting from where you are now, point A to where you want to be ultimately in the future, point B. Yeah, but you know, it's not the first podcast I've, I've done. And, and one of the interesting questions people always ask me is, well, they say, well, which of the nine steps do you consider your favorite or the, you know, mm -hmm. the most. And I have to say the most important step is actually step one. Yeah. Because, you know, there is a, you know, you're in a business and there's a problem with the business. 
And you create what we call the burning platform because this presents a window for either a new leader or potentially the incumbent leader, you know, to, to introduce him or herself and to take ownership of the situation by showing that they are the right person to get this job done. And very important to galvanize the organization into an action mode, or maybe even better put a change mode, because one of the biggest problems you face in a transformation type situation is to get people to understand why they need to change. You know, we are all as humans, typically beings that once we have, org once we have arranged ourselves, once we are in a comfort zone, mm. we don't really want to change anything until we must. And that's why in the first step, the burning platform establishing leadership is about giving the people, giving the organization the why they need to change. And if you don't get that right, you will, you know, you will have problems with the other steps because in the end, any successful transformation is to get people who've been doing something this way over the steps to get them to do it this way. So step number four is very important. But if you don't do step number one properly, you know, you may have a new strategy. But as they say in German, paper is patient. So just because you have a new strategy doesn't necessarily mean that people are not going to change things, change their behavior, change the way they do things. I think one of the points that you make in your book, Pepin, is that you have to actually recognize that you are on a burning platform in the first place, because your book is littered with examples of companies that didn't recognize that. The one that springs to mind is Nokia. The other one that you mentioned is Marks and Spencers, which is a well-established British retailer who have gone through a lot of pain and a lot of change. So if we just stick with that first point of recognizing you're on a burning platform, what is it that you think companies need to do to actually be aware that they're on a burning platform? I, I think it might fall into your four C's. The, yeah. The, <laughs> perhaps you'd like to elaborate on that, the customer, the competition, comfort zone, and cowardice. Yes, Rebecca, you've hit the nail on the head. So, you know, how do you recognize that there is a problem? So from a company perspective, you know, when is the burning platform when is it on fire? Obviously, the one side of the coin is the financials, the numbers, the PL, the cash flow, all these things. Normally, not always, but normally it doesn't happen overnight unless you know you have a corona uh, initiated, let's say, crash in revenues. But normally, as is the case with Nokia, things develop over time. So your financials are are you know steadily deteriorating. That's the one side of the coin. But you're absolutely right, and that's how. I came on, you know, to, 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 to develop the four C's as an idea. Because the other side of the coin, the four C's are the following points. And if you think about it, you know, Nokia, we can talk about in some more detail about the, 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 the case of Nokia, but the four C's are your customer. So Nokia's customers, the competition, the people that Nokia was competing with, the comfort zone of Nokia because of its long success that it was having up to that point, 
And then cowardice in the sense of not making the tough calls that maybe are necessary in such a dire situation. So, you know, the burning platform is the financials on the one hand, one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is the fact that the, that the leadership is failing on the four C's. Now, competition, let's take that C from the four C's. You know, when you think about it, when Steve Jobs came out with this, at the time, funny little device he called the iPhone, you know, where the Nokia managers were actually making jokes about the fact that the battery life would only last barely a day. You know, they were completely underestimating the, let's say, ability of jobs to see the next big thing. And that was, I think, one of their biggest mistakes to not take seriously somebody like Steve Jobs. And I think that's, you know, it's very human. You know, you're successful. They have, so Nokia had 50% market share, 50%. They were the, you know, the gods of, of cell phones at the time. And that went to their head. And that's why everybody else that came along, even this funny company from California, Cupertino, California, they did not take them seriously. And I think that's, you know, always sometimes, well, very often, I would say the beginning of the end for, for any successful business. And if you take Marks and Spencer's, you know, the, um, the first C is interesting. The fact that when Marks and Spencer's came out, you know, it was revolutionary at the time. Food, clothing, under one roof, you know, that was disruption back then. But in the meantime, when you consider the customers, you know, people have gone beyond that concept of food and clothing under one roof. And now there are plenty of very good competitors on the food side, like Waitrose, and plenty of good competitors on the fashion side, you know, whole range of them. So the fact that Marks and Spencer's ran into those difficulties was for me a complete neglect of really understanding their customer, you know, and they were then to take the fourth C and the third C, they were then in such a comfort zone with their structure, their huge organization, that they were ultimately very cowardly and not willing to make what was the real correct decision, which was to split the company in two. And although numbers have improved to this day, they have not been willing, in my eyes, too cowardly to actually accept the fact that it's probably a good idea to split the company into two businesses. I think from um, my own experience that I have a, a daughter, um, she is 21, she wouldn't dream of shopping in Marks and Spencer. <laughs> they just don't cater for that next generation coming through and purchasing clothes and they have been perhaps overtaken in that respect. Let's, let's go into step number two, which is mission and goal. So let's have your thoughts on that, please, Pepin. Yes, and, and this is an interesting one, Rebecca, because, you know, as you can probably imagine, and, and you have extensive, you've had extensive conversations with leaders, but, you know, a mission needs to be clear for the leader to lead well when he has a mission to fulfill you know, double the, double the profits, triple the sales. The clearer a mission is, the better it is for somebody to take that 
and apply it, get it done. But I think what's important is to understand, you know, what constraints are. Because one of the problems I've come across is that sometimes you get a mission. So basically you're told, transform this company. It's making losses, you know, bring the EBITDA to 50 million. Okay, so, you know, as a, as a leader, you're thinking, great, let's try and do this. But then I think, and this is a personal learning, sometimes it's very important to, to very early on, that's why it's right in step two, understand, you know, what are the constraints that you're facing? Because it's like, and it's, this is in the book, you know, it's like being given a restaurant as a chef and being told you're going to turn this into a four-star or let's say two-star restaurant. But you haven't yet, you know, really faced up to the fact that the kitchen is in a terrible state, that the crew in the kitchen are basically very poor. Yeah. So you've been told this is the mission, but you haven't quite understood the constraints that you're up against well enough. And that's why in step two, one of the important messages we, we, you know, we highlight is make sure that when you're in the second step that you are not, you know, getting into a mission impossible, getting, you know, you're not being asked to do something which is going to be very difficult to achieve. And that's why I think, you know, it's important in the second step, that's why it's its own step to really think about that before you then run out the gate and go to the next step. There's a couple of things you said there, Fekum, which I, I find really fascinating, which I'd, I'd like to dive into in a, a bit more detail on. You mentioned, going back a few minutes ago now, you mentioned about kind of um, people within a business being, I guess, resistant to change because this is the way they've always done it. And why would they then change and do something differently? And then you also sort of talked more, I guess, like company-wide, like a, a whole company being not necessarily identifying a change in a market and being, being like, well, we're the leaders nothing's going to change. We're just kind of carry on doing things the way they are. And for example, I also work in sales and, you know, quite often when you're talking with companies, it's quite a challenge to, I guess, show people there's a different way of doing things, which perhaps could be better. And you're always kind of, I guess, like fighting that, um, the, the, the desire for the company to kind of, you know, just like stay with the, like the inertia, the, the, the way they just like the way they've traditionally done things. So whether that's like a, at a team level or a company-wide level, what do you think is like the best way for people to be aware of that and then be more open to, to a change as and when it's needed? Okay, look, I think you're, you know, you're addressing one of, the, um, one of the difficult topics that any leader has to deal with, not necessarily already in a restructuring, but ideally you know, before the company gets into difficulty. And now you're really putting, let's say, the leader on the spot because we as humans, and just look at yourself in the way of habits that you have. You know, we, we as humans like to do things then at some point in one way. You know, we, we have practice in doing it this way. You know, like when you get dressed, the way you get dressed, if you think about it, it's always the same way you get dressed. Yeah, when you're, when you're let's say, uh, cleaning, it's always the same way you're doing something. So we are creatures of habit. So in any organization, once things have kind of, you know, fallen into their groove and success is there, so market success is there, financial success is there, very quickly an organization gets into a mode where it's saying, okay, this is the way to do things. 
it's working, you know, let's, let's focus on this way and let's optimize this way. And that's by the way, when organizations start drafting organizational manuals, I hate organizational manuals because they cement things. They make it almost impossible to change things. But the problem with leadership is that as a good leader, you need to always keep your organization on its toes. And in the book, we, we mention Amazon and we mentioned this amazing phenomenon of the day one versus day two organization that you know Bezos right from the beginning when it was still a little outfit in the garage up to this day has tried to keep what is now what 500,000 employees the size of Amazon has tried to keep this organization what he calls a day one organization so really always nimble on its feet always questioning the way it does things to make sure that it doesn't fall into its comfort zone, that it never becomes at ease. Because, you know, I would say the company graveyard is littered with companies that have kind of fallen into this comfort zone concept. And it's a very challenging task for any leader to have the energy level, to keep the organization always, you know, on the tip of its toes, nimble, and ultimately always willing and able to change as things develop. And especially when you're looking at some of the high-tech type of businesses, which have extremely fast you know, life cycles, obviously your generation is, is more attuned to that. But even your generation, if you think about it, gets into habits. So I find it as, as one of the toughest leadership challenges to really keep your organization, as Jeff Bezos would call it, a day one organization. It's very, very tough. What, what practical tips do you have? Because you, you've talked about your book being very practical, things that you can do as you read the book and implement. If we think about our audience being SME business owners, what practical tips would you give to them so that they can stay a day one business, which is a great phrase. So yeah. What, what, what ideas would you share with them? I think, um, you know, off the top of my head, I would, I would say there are three things that I would, uh, I would do. And now I'm kind of going to the back of the book, the nine steps. So I'm going to the ninth step. I think the first thing I would, I would impress upon them is to introduce what we call the after action review, which is a fascinating concept. Now, as you probably have already read, it's from the military, yeah? And it's a very simple idea. So when you look at the special air service, you know, their mission, mission success cycle has four stages, plan, brief, execute, debrief, four steps. Plan is logical. Brief is interesting. It's like discussing the plan with the people that are going to execute the plan. Then number three is they go out, they do whatever they have to do, and hopefully all come back. And the fourth step is they all sit down, the people who planned and the people that went out and did the mission. And they discuss in a constructive manner, in a objective, constructive, and very open manner, what was good and what was not so good. Because they tried to create the ultimate learning organization. Their idea is to do this because their philosophy is 
you know, the way you learn from both successes and failures is what allows you to improve. So you're taking all the good things, but also the bad things from past missions and using that to become what I call a learning organization. So to your listeners, I think the first point is, you know, do more after action review because it's something best practice military organizations do, but very few businesses do. And why is that? Because, so the owners of your SMEs, you know, they have to sit in the room. So the owner has to sit in the room, the boss has to sit in the room and listen to criticism from maybe the French sales rep who's explaining to them why the plan to take the British product and roll it out in France was not such a good idea and ultimately was not a commercial success. So, you know, it's a criticism of the boss's plan. And the, the boss needs to be able to take that criticism and say, okay, he's right, you know, put away the biases, like, you know, the French are difficult or whatever, put away the biases and say, yeah, Francois is right. That plan was not well thought through. So what do we learn from it? First tip, yeah, after action review. I think the second tip is really to, to say, okay, you know, what is, you know, what is the, the essence of a dynamic organization? For me, the essence of a dynamic organizations are flat hierarchies and smaller entities. Because a flat hierarchy means there are less people managing themselves. Because you think about it, you know, who are the people that on a day-to-day -day basis bringing the money? Well, it's the person building a product. So the person in the factory assembling something it's the person selling that to the customer. And it's the person, not to forget, who collects the money from the customer. Everybody else is administrating in some form or other. So a flat hierarchy means that ultimately you don't have too many people between the boss and the people actually doing the value adding work who are managing themselves. The other element of that second point is that if you have smaller entities, smaller units, you have more nimble groups of people because larger entities become very difficult. Yeah, they, they are slow by definition because if you're moving 300 people from here to there, it becomes a slower process as to moving 30 people from here to there. So one of the things I would say to your listeners is try to always organize yourself in a flat hierarchical manner and have smaller entities that are really much more nimble and I would say able to manage themselves. So delegate into, you know, into the smaller entities responsibilities and the ability to make their own decisions. I think that's the second point. And I think the third point is, I would call it always as a boss, creating and I mean this in a positive sense, a, a kind of a crisis. So setting targets. And it's interesting, again, one of the companies we mentioned in the book, a company called Ascona, right now, politically not very correct, it's a Russian business. Yeah? They are very, very successful in Russia and they are also now 
successful in the UK. They have a they have a, a brand or a a bedding retail chain called Sleep Eight, so the number eight. And what they do every year is that the boss defines new targets for the organization, and then asks asks the organization, and this is done in the context of a three-day workshop to come back with ideas on how to achieve those targets. So he's kind of challenging them to think outside the box, to think of new ideas. So, you know, keeping them on their toes. So these are the three tips I would give your listeners. Uh, thank it, you, Kathy. Uh, Callum, sorry, oh, yeah. I was just gonna say, uh, Contradict some memories then when you talked about the after action review. Um, I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast, but um, maybe a colleague or maybe even you read it back from his um, the book by David Goggins. And he talks about in his his book a number of times about he's a he's a military person from the States and he talks about doing all these kind of incredible challenges. And you know, when he does one and, and fails it, kind of goes back and does it after action report and analyze, you know, what went well, but also as well ultimately what didn't go well, what caused him to fail on that one, and kind of doing it time and time again until you succeed. Um, and I guess your point around like sort of the, the flatter and, and smaller teams, as well as the leader having that vision or creating the urgency of where they want to go sort of ties into point six and, and seven. Would you say that's kind of like the, the link in between the points there? Yeah. So six is more about the quality of your leadership team. Mm-hmm. Seven is definitely what you, what you just said. It's about the, you know, creating the organizational structure for maximum impact. Sure. And, and, you know, it all kind of fits together because we've not talked much about three, step three and step four, because obviously in the context of step three, you are really asking yourself the question about your environment. You know, what does my market look like? What does my competition look like? And this is very important because one of the interesting things we humans, again, as one of our, you know, we have so many deficits, <laughs> as one of our other deficits, and by the way, Rebecca, men are much more prone to this than women, but we always tend to overestimate our strengths and underestimate the strengths of others or overestimate the weaknesses of others. So one of the interesting phenomenons I've always come across is when a company does a swap, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, they are always, they are always or very often overestimating themselves and underestimating the competition. So in step three, I think what's very important is, you know, and, and we've seen this with truly great business leaders, is that you should never really underestimate your competition. And, you know, you need to really understand what they are doing so that you, at the end of the day, can answer the following question, which is, what are your true strengths? You know, what are you really good at compared to your competition? And there's always an interesting correlation, which is kind of logical, but but it's not always applied, which is if you have true strengths in the context of the market that you're serving, the customer that you're serving, and your, your strengths are, let's say, real, then it will be reflected in your market share. It will be reflected in the dynamics of your market share growth. So if you consider yourself really good, but it's not reflected in your market share, then you're probably kidding yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean... It's, it's a truism. It's unfortunate that, that many people ignore that, but this is something that you really need to, you know, understand because once you understand your strengths and weaknesses, only then, and you asked about it before, Callum, can you go to step four, 
which is actually, you know, and there are many books on strategy. I was at McKinsey, I've done strategies, you know, many times. And, and at McKinsey and effectively all the other consultants, it's, we make a big thing out of it, don't we? we? We have a huge report. But if you look at the really truly great business people, you know, their strategy is very simple. It's based on the one hand, on the concept of taking what you are good at, your strengths, and attacking the other person's weaknesses. Yeah. And when you think about the iPhone, the iPhone really just had this concept of, of combining three things, you know, phone, internet, games. And if you remember the old Nokia phones, they were great phones. They would, they had a battery life of, I don't know, a week mm. to make phone calls with. But in the meantime, and you, you talked about the younger generation before, but in the meantime, you know, young people were ready to combine internet, gaming, and phones. And that's when the iPhone came out and it just kind of took off like a rocket. Yeah. So the concept of strategy is really use your strengths, if I may use this word, to attack the weaknesses of your competitor. And the other dimension for strategy for me is, well, are you going to be using the element of surprise? Are you going to be use, using the element of, of timing? Or are you going to be using the element of just, you know, massive force? So you're basically inundating them with, with, with volumes, you know, with just mass of new product. And all great strategies ultimately can, re, can be reduced to this, these, you know, two-dimensional perspectives on, on what you are doing as a company. How much if, do you, sorry, Papin, please go, please go. I was just going to say, you talked about Marks and Spencers before, you know, your daughter and, and basically most other people just felt they could shop better outside of Marks and Sparks. So, you know, why would you go to Marks and Spencers to buy clothes? Yeah. And, and, you know, the people at Marks and Sparks didn't really understand their customer because if they would understand the customer, this would not happen because the brand is so strong. They had such strong ownership of a whole segment of the British population, but they just forgot, or no, sorry, not forgot. They, they missed the boat when people changed and they did not understand that their former strengths were now weaknesses. Because I think, as I understand it from Richard, the only time he would go into Marks and Sparks today, you know, and he's in his 50s, is to buy underwear. He would not go in there for anything else. What do you think, Pepin, um, make the characteristics of a great leader? Because we've talked about leaders that create attention. We've talked about leaders who can accept criticism. So, you know, they don't mind if their ego gets damaged because they've been told their plan was ridiculous or had faults in it. What other characteristics do you think make a great leader? And my other question to follow on that, do you think Jeff Bezos has them? Look, I think what is interesting to observe, and now we're just looking at it from a empirical perspective is that let's take Bezos you know these people are not generally 
in the modern sense, leaders who are nice. Yeah, I think they are partially very abrasive. But I think if you if you ask me the question, what what kind of you know what do they all have as as common attributes? You know, we we went away after we did the did the research on on all these great companies, and we kind of asked ourselves the question because my belief is, look at the leader, look at look at their strengths, and you will see those reflected in the performance of the company. So we, we talk about what's called the great leader effect. And then the question becomes, you know, as you've just asked, well, what sets a great leader aside from, from the rest? And there are three things, you know, that, that I would consider to be very important. One, business acumen. You know, do you know your business? Do you understand your business? That means, do you know your company, the people that are working for you in the context of their strengths and weaknesses? Do you know the market that you're serving? Yeah. Do you have goals that you've set yourself, you know, ideas that you've developed, priorities that you can set about, about that business, about serving that market? And ultimately, can you, you know, look at it from a, from a perspective of higher up and lower down, detach yourself, analyze the situation and make the right decision for that business. So I think business acumen is, is something they all have or had, you know, in the case of Steve Jobs, that's a very important leg of the three. The second one is what I would call leadership skills. And this one has more to do, you know, with them being good managers of talent and teams. People like Jobs, who was, by the way, very unpleasant to work for, you know, he was aware, I would say, of his deficiencies and, and made sure he had around him a team that was very complementary to his strengths and weaknesses. Also, you know, somebody who could inspire followership and, and who could, you know, take people with him because of, as you mentioned before, he had a clear vision and he could define the mission to achieve that vision. But also, I would say, the ability to communicate, to delegate, to articulate, because all these people are great delegators because they never succeed if they want to do everything themselves, never. They always succeed because they're able to build a great team who they delegate things to. So that's the second leg, you know, what I would call leadership skills. And the third leg is what I would then define as, as personal character where one of the things that they all have is competitiveness. They want to be first. They want to win. They are, because of that focus, highly adaptable people. They have a learning mindset because they are constantly wanting to win. They are forcing themselves to, to adapt and learn. You know, like this way didn't work. Okay, I need to find a new way. Let me go and learn some things and try then a new approach. They are very often angular. They are not Mr. Nice Guy because they have a clear view. They have a clear position and they don't care if you don't like it. This is the way they see things, yeah? And very decisive types, very decisive. Don't procrastinate at all. You know, they have a clear idea of when they wanna go. If, it is, if a tough decision is needed, they'll make that tough decision. And then the last one is something which, which again, we see with these guys, with these 
sorry, Rebecca, sometimes ladies, sometimes men, but very often men, yeah, they are, they take ownership of something. They say, this is my baby. This is my thing. I'm going to make this a success. And when they fail, it's because they fail. And they accept that. They failed. Yeah. They may then get up again and try again. But they never you know, say, well, look, if it works out, it's, it's me. It's all me. And if it doesn't work out, it's them. It, it was them who failed. You know, there are always people that take ownership of what they're doing. So, sorry, a bit long-winded, but that is my answer to your question. No, I think you touched on uh, a lot of points there, which I think I was going to come on to say, like, I feel like the, the step that we haven't touched on yet was, was the campaign delivery step eight, and we, we kind of covered the after-action review, but I think you tied in a lot of different points there, and you talked about previously as well, kind of um, when a company wants to move forward and, I guess, apply their strengths to attack the competition's weaknesses, and was that going to be a timing, a force, or, or a volume side of things, which is more of a company-wide sort of thing, but then we were also just talking about kind of in a leadership context, what essentially what makes an effective leader. And correct me if I'm wrong, but would that sort of fall into the campaign delivery side of things? Yeah, look, I think, um, and, and this step eight, you know, it's only one of nine, but it's actually the critical step because that's the mm. way, that's the step where you actually- It's the implementation, act, right? Yeah, it's where you, where you open up that new office in France and you now try to sell those products in France. Mm. And, I, you know, one of, the, one of the points we make is that it's important to have gone through the previous steps and have done them well. And as somebody famous said, you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So it's important to have kind of, you know, laid it all out. You don't need to take ages for that. You can be quick and swift, but you still need to have gone through it. You need to have done details. And this is something that you, that's really something where, you know, Richard impressed upon me. You don't, leave things out in the military you really go through the motions that's why they have these processes because you know forgetting something omitting something in the military has deadly consequences in business not at all but i think the discipline is important in business so you know having done everything prepared everything and then you are doing it you're going in there and you're now trying to grow something you're trying to you know get back market share you're trying to maybe go into a new geography. You're, you're effectively trying to now transform the business. And this is you know, where the leader ultimately succeeds, as I said before, or fails. And what's important here is the following interesting phenomenon, and we all know it, but we don't always think about it so much in business, which is that you know, you're now acting something out. And what we always forget in business, in the military they don't because it's very real, but in business, you know, we act we do something and we forget that, well, if you act, if you apply force in a direction, typically what happens is that you have a counter force. So your action has a reaction. So you need to think about this. Well, I'm going to open that office and I'm gonna hire five new sales reps. Well, the guy that you're trying to take the market share away from, he's not gonna sit there and do nothing. You know, He may then staff up on his, sales force, or he may hire away your two best sales reps. So your action will have, a, will have a reaction. So it's important to think that through and then maybe have your counteraction to a potential reaction. And in the book, we, we introduce a concept called UDA, which is from the military, which is something that came, that was observed in the Korean war, which is called 
observe, orientate, decide, act. So this is a, a process, a principle which is applied, you know, in the midst of an action. So when you're doing something, things change, you know, as von Moltke said, um, you know, no plan uh, survives first contact with the enemy. So you're always on the move. You're always having to be close to the action, if I may use that word, to adapt your plan, to change your plan. So in step eight, it's just not about acting out your plan. It's about acting out your plan, but being aware of the fact things may change. You need to have a plan B, maybe even a plan C to back up that change to make sure you do not get derailed, you know? And there's another famous saying I love, which is the plan is nothing. Planning is everything. <laughs> That's a nice quote. And uh, for anyone else that was interested in who said your first quote about uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail, it was uh, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. So, uh, I just, just, just Googled it. Um, it's a bit like everyone's probably heard this quote a million times, but it's a bit like Mike Tyson's one, isn't it? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, I, I really enjoyed our conversation, Pepin. I think there's been a lot of uh, like concepts in there that people can go away and, and take away and implement and put into their business. And I think it follows like a, a logical progression from from start to end and implementing that, and as you said, orientating, deciding, and acting. I, I like that quote at the end where. Um, what was it? The plan is nothing, but planning is is everything. And um, I think that summarizes it quite nicely. As we draw to a close, do you have any final thoughts on on leadership or anything that you feel we've maybe missed out in that conversation, which you'd like to, to add? No, I think you know we've been well. You've been so kind to to let me answer many of your questions quite extensively. But I think you know coming back to what uh, Rebecca said, this book is really you know a how to book. We we don't say there is an perfect answer because life is way too complicated for that we try with the book just to give people tips pointers interesting anecdotes which are i find great to 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 read about and to use those anecdotes tips and pointers to try to help people you know if they are facing a transformational situation to maybe just be able to deal with it a little bit better because everybody has their approach to doing things and that's why we, we chose to kind of break it down the steps so that people can organize themselves in their thinking and their approach. So we are not saying it's the answer to every problem. We're simply saying it can help and maybe hopefully it does help. That's what the book is about. Thank you very much, Pepin. And one um, very interesting illustration in the book is a fish <laughs> eating. And the fish is eating strategy and it's, um, culture eats strategy which yes. I thought was a really nice illustration and would be nice to to dig into that but maybe that's come back for another podcast and explain that in a little bit more detail but I thought it was a great image great design thank you Rebecca thank you well um, I much enjoyed it and I hope I was uh, interesting for for your uh, listeners and then I'll enjoy listening to the podcast when it comes out Thank you very much indeed, Pepe. Now, the book is available. We will put the, the uh, link to the book in the uh, show notes. And um, I am reading it, and that you're absolutely right. It's littered with illustrations. So it's very easy to understand your message because there are so many examples and we have companies that we can all relate to. Yes, that have, that's, 
Yes, that was important that to take companies people know and can kind of say like, oh yeah, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, like the Nokia, for example, <laughs> there's so many great examples to really drum home the message yeah. that we, we've got to be adaptive and agile and look at these steps and use them as an assessment on our leadership and how we're taking the business forward. So thank you very much indeed, Pepin. Nice to have you join us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Callum. Bye-bye. Thanks very much, Pepin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we welcome a review. And if you have any questions and like to get in touch with us, you can do that at the rjen.co.uk website.